Welcome to Main Street Mesa, where we discuss issues around building a more human, people-centered community. Joining us today is Lucas Lindsay and Roberta Quay. Lucas, go ahead and uh, introduce yourself to the folks a little bit. Hey, Ryan, David. Thanks for thanks for having Roberta and I today. Uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a development manager. I work in real estate and construction uh, for a small but mighty firm in Phoenix, Arizona called uh, Venue Projects. Uh, so by day, I try and get things built, and by night, I tweet about it. <laughs> And I'm Roberta Clay. I'm an independent architect here in Phoenix, and I do a lot of work with venue projects uh, on these um, missing middle projects. All right. Well, we won't get into missing middle just so much just yet, but that's a good teaser for uh, folks to, to stay tuned in. David, uh, I know David cued me in on this project. I know he's pretty excited to talk. Any, any preliminary thoughts? Oh, I'm just really excited about sort of the suburban retrofit. How do we add gentle density into our neighborhoods in uh, a meaningful and uh, yeah, in a respectful uh, way? That's cool. Yeah. And Lucas, Roberto, you both strike me as passionate about your work. And I think that's going to come out in the course of this interview that we have prepared for us, uh, for the audience today. And so I want to hurry up and get into the project and what makes it an intriguing story for people to, you know, capture into and, and understand how it impacts the livability of the community. And we can all learn so much from it. So quickly, the title and the inspiration behind the title. The yeah, project. our project is, uh, that we're here talking about today is called Foursquare. Uh, and it is a four unit, uh, each unit being two beds, two baths, four, uh, four unit residential property uh, in central Phoenix. Uh, we're excited about it because it is the conversion of a formerly single family lot into uh, a four little homes. So going from one home to four homes. Uh, we call it four square because the units are arranged such that there's uh, a nice little shared courtyard. Uh, on site between two of the units. So you got two units side by side with a beautiful courtyard and trees, uh, and then two units next to that uh, with a courtyard in between them. And there's great little squares, little public spaces between the buildings. Uh, so that's kind of the inspiration uh, behind the name there. Your project is located uh, just a few blocks away from Biltmore Fashion Park in the Biltmore area. Uh, pretty good access to jobs and schools and some um, fancy delicious restaurants um what what is the interest in in this 
place for infill housing. Yeah, it's a great little neighborhood. As you said, it's right, right off the 51. It's got good highway access. You can get anywhere in 10 minutes. Uh, right next to 20th and Camelback with all that retail and, and great grocery stores and restaurants. So, uh, you know, initially, it's uh, it's a neighborhood where one of the owners of Venue lives and has lived for decades uh, and has worked in that area uh, for decades. And so it's kind of near and dear to the hearts of the people in our company. Uh, that's how we initially uh, started looking at this neighborhood. Uh, we're the type of company that likes to develop in our own backyard and build trust with neighbors and people that we know. And so we've worked for over 10 years in, in central Phoenix, almost exclusively. We did do one project in downtown Mesa, uh, but this, in this one, we're back in our backyard in central Phoenix. And, you know, there's lifetimes amounts of redevelopment work in central Phoenix alone. So we're just kind of biting off a small piece of that. Uh, this site was a single family home that had been owned by one of the principals of venue projects for a little while as a, as a rental that he uh, rented to uh, family members and friends over the years. Uh, and it, it's just come time in this neighborhood. It's in the midst of transition and it's, it's time where some of these properties have a higher and better use, you know, just, just down the street at 16th street in Highland, uh, you see an example of a large four story over, over one story of parking, um, you know, two, 300 unit apartment complex that went up with ground floor retail, that kind of uh, Wall Street urbanism that we've gotten in the 2010 era, uh, all over our cities. Uh, and so you've seen a lot of transition. There's a lot of multifamily already in this er in this uh, neighborhood, a lot of one to two story stuff, old condos developed in previous decades. Uh, so it's a really interesting cross section of housing. It kind of runs the gambit from single family to you know two, three, four hundred unit apartment complexes, uh, and so there's a lot of development pressure, and we're interested in in, in kind of upzoning one of those properties. So it's really exciting to hear about the idea of investing in the neighborhood you live in uh, with your company and and having that relationship with the neighbors already. If you didn't have that. Um, relationship with this property, what about the site would make this attractive um, if you were looking for a new site? Yeah, I mean, a couple of things jump uh, come to mind right, right off the bat. One is that it's zoned a multifamily, so it's existing and in, in use as single family, but it's zoned R4, which in Phoenix can get, I don't know, Roberta, was it almost 20, 30 dwelling units an acre in R4? Um, of course, it all depends on all the other variables as to when the property was subdivided and things of that nature. But right. uh, it's obviously something that's not attainable for an acre lot of that. You know, <laughs> we we couldn't fit that density on there, but we we have the ability to if if we could go up. What what is the size of your lot that you're working with? So our lot is uh, about. 175 by 80 feet. Uh, it gives us 12, 13,000 square foot of space to work with, uh, which made it really great for a single family house at a garage and lots of large irrigated grass lot and these big, huge, mature trees uh, that have been there probably as, as long as the house has been for since the 40s and 50s. Um, 
but uh, we noticed, you know, you have a lot like that. It's just one house, one family, but it had R4 zoning. So it's sitting there kind of underutilized. So, I mean, if we didn't have a tie to the neighborhood, I think that's what we'd be looking at. We'd be looking at for um, lots that are like this, have a, a corner condition or something that gives it a little more space uh, than your prototypical kind of five to 8,000 square foot single family lot, something that would give us kind of 10 to 15,000, uh, maybe with a use that's underutilizing its, its higher zoning. And you've got a great corner there too with Highland, which is a uh, minor uh, street and a uh, somewhat residential street, which is the long axis of the yeah, property. Yeah, Highland is a uh, kind of a cut through in that area. Because the 51 ties into Highland, you do get a decent amount of traffic, which you've seen over the years, the neighborhood has tried to work on traffic calming. They have speed bumps and that sort of stuff along Highland to kind of alleviate some of that pressure. But but yeah, and then the 14th Street uh, doesn't go all the way through. It's blocked by the uh, auto dealerships along Camelback. So it's not a technical dead end, but it feels a lot like a dead end in that neighborhood. Uh, so you really have to be going somewhere specific to want to be going north-south on 14th there. So it's a very quiet street, uh, abundant street parking, which we took advantage of for this project. Uh, and, yeah, just a great, quiet residential condition, but surrounded by by multifamily. You had mentioned the existing trees. I see that there's um, a pecan tree and maybe a, an ash. and some ash, other- yeah. Older trees, some there. giant ficus trees along the along the street there. Big ficus. Are any of those going to be able to be retained with the project itself? Yeah. So we really prioritized that Roberta. Uh, we put Roberta through the ringer of trying to kind of thread the needle of the site plan and place <laughs> these buildings in and around trees. Uh, and we're we're salvaging probably three quarters of those those big mature trees on site. Uh, a couple had to go and were in bad shape anyway, but particularly all the perimeter ones. And that was really important to us. We love indoor-outdoor environments. We really think Arizona has this special, unique ability to live outdoors three-quarters of the year, and we like to celebrate that. We think it brings value to, to projects, both residential and commercial. People want that. People are attracted to that. Uh, they'll pay to live near that. Um, and we, you know, with the city of Phoenix, uh, we can talk about the stuff we went through with parking maybe here uh, during the podcast, but uh, that was one thing we cited in our our argument, actually. I sort of made a a more or less a historic preservation argument for trees. Uh, I don't know if that's the first time anyone's ever done that, but I made the argument that these things are, they're greater than 50 years old. They seem to be significant to me. Uh, City of Phoenix has a, a goal set to be more walkable, to have shade aligned sidewalks uh, and instead of planting little saplings we have the opportunity to just keep the shade we already have so yeah it was really important to us uh, to try and do that and uh, yeah you know. if anybody's not from the phoenix area the the ficus is amazing at uh, producing a, a microclimate that's worth celebrating so kudos yeah that's right and it'll throw great shade over those those squares those little plaza parks um, patios in between of the buildings yeah, and, and trying to get a tree that big onto a site new is not something you can get. You can only purchase that with time. That's right, yeah. It, we're in the shade of our forefathers there, so we have to take advantage of it. 
And so you've touched on this a little bit, like you've seen some stuff happening around the site too, that, that kind of triggers that idea that the current single family residential use is underutilized on a site this size and with the zone that it has and everything like that. But if, if you have like a crystal ball, do you see more of these projects kind of coming into the, the neighborhood behind you and, and this be like uh, you're setting a trend to, to replicate? I mean, we certainly plan to do more of these projects. The goal with Foursquare was for it to, for us to be a prototype. We've traditionally done a lot of commercial adaptive reuse work, um, but we're seeing such a need for housing uh, in the Phoenix metro region that, that that we wanted to get deeper into that. And missing middle style housing uh, that we're here to talk about was is going to be our expression of of how to meet that need. Uh, so we plan to follow along with more. Uh, the, the point of this project was to learn, to adapt, to have kind of a minimum viable product that we, in the spirit of the tech world, can iterate on. Uh, we've right. certainly learned a ton. You know, Roberta, our team, we've learned just a ton about uh, all the ways this is difficult. And so hope to make it easier in the future. Whether or not other people do it, uh, I mean, maybe we'll help inspire others. Uh, it's, but again, it's our intention, too. Well, I know that a lot of people are inspired by projects of this size, and I think that's probably a good time to talk about what this size is and what where it's kind of fitting into the market in, in the housing terms. So we see a lot in the Phoenix area. We see a lot in cities either go small single family residential uh, or mega large giant projects with many, many apartments and a lot like a sea of asphalt around it and just sort of the the livability of the community kind of suffers. Everything's kind of so separated and segmented and, and whatnot. But uh, a lot of people are calling this missing middle. That's I, I take that that was an inspiration for you guys. And so it's something that you guys are already replicating, right? Tell us about why missing middle is uh, intriguing to you and, and why it's so important to this project. Yeah. I mean, that's it. We're inspired by uh, this idea that there's an entire segment typology of housing that's uh, we used to do well and we no longer really do at all uh, in, in our cities across America. So it's certainly a timely and trending topic. Uh, you hear Missing Middle a lot. I mean, Dan Paralek, the architect at, whose firm Opticos really pushed and coined that phrase. I, I mean, it's only been, what, a decade since that's been around in the urbanism circles, but um, but most of those products uh, where we had them most predate 1940s. So uh, it's not a new idea, but it's sort of a rediscovered one. Uh, and it's definitely definitely something we're inspired by. Uh, we're just a lot to learn about it. Roberta, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about the site plan and being able to put houses and design houses around those trees and still and, and how the homes themselves flow and what the living is like on the site. I mean, just just to get an idea, I think we, we probably had probably between 15 and 20 reiterations of this plan trying to um, find something that worked, something that preserved what was already on the land as far as the trees, um, start looking into, you know, obviously initially we were very driven by parking and trying to get the parking resolved. And just as time went on and we kept doing reiterations, 
you know, I, I think originally we were looking at something like trying to do 10 units or something like that, something much, you know, much denser. And just after looking at everything, we ended up with these four units, which are two bedroom, two bath, and just trying to utilize our thoughts about what kind of person would be interested in renting this this type of property versus, you know, living. And I think Lucas and I have spoke about this together about, you know, someone wanting to live in sort of an individual environment versus a large multifamily environment um, with, you know, 200 apartments. You know, we were driven by sort of the two bedroom, two bath concept. So if you had a roommate, you could each have your own space. Um, it has a, you know, a integrated kitchen that belongs to both units. If you had a parent and you were doing aging in place, they, they could possibly utilize that one other bedroom. Um, so we, we just thought of all these different kinds of concepts where these would be an interesting use for everyone. And then as we got into the city zoning, um, it just became more and more driven by, you know, setbacks, um, right of ways, um, common spaces, everything that's required within the zoning ordinance. Yeah, the deeper we got into it, the more we saw the site development standards kind of became the, the tail wagging the dog. Uh, we had our program and our sense of what we wanted to see. Uh, and then it was just how to fit all those pieces together. So, you know, it's a concept that was allowed by zoning by right. But when you get down to the nitty gritty of the details, you start to see why it's so difficult and probably why it's not been replicated a lot over the last few decades, you know, why it's dropped off the uh, the map so much. Yeah. So by right zoning, just for listeners, is the type of project that you can take without getting council approval or planning and zoning commission approval to necessarily approve the, the unplanned version of something on the site. So good job guys for reverse engineering and all that, but it just wasn't as easy as picking up that concept and, and running with it. So you guys did have some discretionary uh, decisions that had to be made along the way. And did any of those require neighborhood buy-off or neighbor buy-off or anything or public meetings? Yeah, we did have to do public outreach process. Uh, in order to make our site plan work, in the end, we had to obtain a parking variance. Uh, so we we went for a kind of revolutionary type of variance and went for um, zero off-street uh, parking on site. So a couple reasons for that. Uh, one, there's some great uh, adjacent and abundant uh, street parking. As I mentioned, very quiet street, plenty of space there. Uh, and, and true to Phoenix form, nice wide right-of-ways, plenty of, of thoroughfare left over for everything else to get through with street parking. Uh, and then we wanted to salvage the this concept of having indoor-outdoor space, having um, squares and uh, patios in between the units. Uh, so we needed that space. We also needed the uh, maneuverability around the trees and, and respecting the footprints of those existing large trees uh, would have been difficult to get ingress, egress, and asphalt lots. You know, we literally would have paved over paradise, as they say. So uh, to avoid all that, we went for a parking variance, and that was the big ask. And that took a few months uh, through Phoenix uh, zoning adjustment. Had to do the typical 
mailing letters. We went to neighborhood association meeting. Uh, we uh, had calls and, and meetings in our office with neighbors who were interested. Uh, but by and large, I think they were they were pretty excited about this idea of these four little kind of beautifully simple modern homes uh, being dropped in. You know, it is amazing when we think about you know what it, what how many parking spaces would you have had to put on the site if you had followed the the old zoning program? One point uh, five per unit, so we would have needed, I think, six there. Oh my goodness. That's right. Half dozen. Would that have taken up like half the site with asphalt? Well, when you start to, I'll let Roberta mull that over for a second. But <laughs> uh, when you, yeah, when you start to think about the size of the space, but even more than that, it's a maneuverability that you have to account for. And then being able to turn around, and get in and out without backing out of the sidewalk right of way, because that would require probably its own variance. Uh, you know, we initially we looked at nose in parking, like kind of nosing in off the street that actually exists to the south at a it's not a retirement facility. I think it's a, a care uh, facility, extended care, uh, but they have nose in parking right off the street. So we pitched that to the city. Hey, look, it's right next door. They already do it. We could do it, too. We said, No, that's illegal. <laughs> we don't know why they're allowed to do it. <laughs> like, we don't either. But why can't we? Uh, so that didn't go very far. Uh, and I mean, you know, you don't want to back out in a right of way. It's probably not ideal, but we, again, we explored all, everything we could. So they would have taken up quite a bit of space. And it's an old irrigated, old Phoenix irrigated lot. We wanted to keep the irrigation for those big trees. I mean, there's, there's a lot to work around. Oh, I'm just looking at the commercial space to the east of you, and it has 10 spaces. And those 10 lot, those 10 parking spaces look to be about the same size as the entire lot. Yeah, that probably, that probably makes sense. So you would have had to go vertical, stack things, put them together. Then you start to get into, okay, well, now you're meeting your parking and you're stacking your units, uh, but now you're being accused of building a tower in a neighborhood. Mm -hmm. You know, whether and, and I'm exaggerating a little, but you start to get into those perceptions and those issues and you create a different set of problems that can block a project as well. So there's a lot to navigate when you're developing everything from neighborhood buy-in to, uh, you know, the legal standards of the city to then what the bank's going to finance to then what you think a renter's actually going to pay for. Uh, so it's a big juggling act. I just can't imagine that you would have to lose all of your trees and add so much more asphalt to a city that is already so hot and filled with solid ground when right sitting right in front of your property are a bunch of parking spaces that uh, already exist, a bunch of asphalt that is not otherwise used. Yeah, it's just not a, how is that a good outcome for the city and the neighborhood, right? You know, I, th I think that what we're trying to do is is better for the area. Uh, you know, I think of when I, I used to visit my aunt in LA, she lived in a historic neighborhood in LA. It was all street parking, you know, we'd park there and go to her house and couldn't get into her backyard or onto her lot. Her car filled up the one spot they had. Uh, so, you know, I you just make, you make do, you deal with it, you'll just learn to live. Uh, and those were beautiful little neighborhoods. I loved visiting her down there. So it was a great scale. Uh, actually fairly dense. And so I, I think it's all a better outcome. And I'm happy to not be paying an asphalt guy to put petroleum down. 
Well, and I also think one thing that we, we noticed is that there is this on-street parking, but it's not, it's not even utilized um, to the amount that it should be utilized. You know, if they're putting it there, you would think that it would be being used, but it really wasn't. But then when we wanted to utilize it, it seemed like it just became, I mean, I think we jumped through a lot of hoops just to utilize these public parking spaces. <laughs> yeah, and I think, yeah, that starts to get it, get into things that maybe you could do better. We'll talk a lot about that, I'm sure. But, uh, you know, a city could choose to count a, how many how many public parking spaces exist along street right-of-way? Has anyone drawn lines and counted? I don't even know if that's in a database somewhere. But if they had that accounted for our neighborhood, I mean, in lieu of putting on-site parking, maybe we would have gladly paid like a shared parking fee to tie up three or four of those spots and allocate them to our lot. You know, I mean, I don't know that who says that can't exist. Right. So I think as long as we can get a little more creative, I mean, it's a public resource uh, that exists and maybe you should have to pay, like I said, an annual fee or whatever to make use of it uh, as a developer. Okay, that's fine. We'll work that into the project. Same as we would have had to work an asphalt lot. But, you know, if it's better for the site plan, better for the trees, better for the neighborhood, I don't see why we can't get more creative. So I'm hearing some arguments you're making for the benefit of uh, the neighborhood. And I guess that's when you when you had to approach the, the neighbors about this parking variance. I'm, uh, I'm impressed that, you know, you guys got through that process. And I imagine that you've had some uh, some tough conversations with folks as to the benefit of leveraging that public asset versus paving so much more of your site for the storage of vehicles. So what did what did the neighbors have to say and how did how did you persuade them? What what made it a, a selling point for them? Yeah, I mean, I think. By and large, uh, I think when people saw the aesthetic quality and creative quality of what we were trying to propose, you know, they under they felt that it was worth building and it was worth supporting uh, for one because it's unique and different, uh, but it's, it's also because it's just four eight hundred and some square foot buildings. It was an accessible scale. It wasn't intimidating. Uh, and frankly, you know, you can you can kind of pit things against each other a little when you're you're doing having these conversations. But just down the street, they saw the four over one go up, which I don't have a problem with myself. But a lot of those folks, they see that and they think, well, uh, you know, if someone assembles enough of these lots, uh, that might that by right could exist next to me potentially. Uh, and so, you know, you, you give that as an example, like, hey, you know, over time. Do you want your neighborhood to turn into that or do you just want it to gradually evolve and grow and get a few more neighbors than you had before? Uh, and I think that when it's framed that way uh, and people see it as more accessible and more friendly, uh, that goes a long way uh, to the discussions. Now, the, the, the no parking on site, maybe that's, that's something we're going to pursue on every site because it's probably not going to be necessary on every site. But uh, it's also, you know, not every street parking condition is going to make sense everywhere. So it's contextual. And I recognize that it uh, was very progressive for the city to give us that. And I thank them for that because uh, it helps make the site work. 
Yeah. And you say that it's so unique and partly because it's so much harder to do it this way, right? The, all the extra time and effort that it took to go through the process for a, a parking variance. Whereas if it was codified that, you know, on-street parking can count towards your off-street parking or your on-site parking requirements, that uh, that can be something that uh, maybe the city council or planning and zoning commission can get behind. So if if I'm a, a city council member or I'm a planning and zoning commissioner uh, for the city, uh, why is that in my best interest to, to see this become more replicable across Phoenix? Well, I think as time goes on, we're going to start seeing more and more of these sort of empty lots or with houses that are sort of aging out. And as they age out, I think people tend to, you know, they, they tend to not be taken care of. Um, and as we see more and more of these empty lots, I think there's just going to be a higher, you know, a, a bigger need to not necessarily put another single family house on it because the lot in this case, you know, this is a rather large lot for a single family house. Not everyone can afford single family housing and not everyone wants to be in a huge multifamily complex. So this is definitely needed and necessary. You know, I think as um, David said, sort of the gentle addressing density in, in the city. But I think one thing that we've done is, you know, we've massaged this plan. We, we probably put in more time and effort into this than anyone could pop probably realistically afford to. Yeah. And for us, that's really because it justifies itself as long as we do more of it. Right. And that's our stated goal and intention. Um, but yeah, if you're going to be a one-off uh, property investor or owner, uh, this is not necessarily the way to do it. There is something Roberta touched on that I'd love to riff on, if you guys don't mind. And she, yeah. she mentioned the word affordable. And I think this gets to your question, Ryan. But uh, if I am a city council person for Phoenix, Arizona, I think I have to be honest with myself about the fact that we are currently in the midst of a rapidly rising housing crisis. We are truly in the midst of a time when, a, when people at the bottom half of our city are getting priced out. First-time home buyers are, are not able to find accessible uh, homes at that three, four hundred thousand dollar. Even that's inaccessible for second, third homeowner, for in some cases. Uh, and every year it's going up. In 2020, uh, Arizona Republic reported a rise in medium housing in uh, Phoenix Metro of 17 percent. That's one year. Now there's a lot wrapped up in 2020 with low interest rates and pandemic and people buying bigger homes to work from home. But you could look every year before that, and you're seeing near double-digit increases anyway in the late 2010s. Uh, so, I mean, that's the context that, that all this is happening in. And there's just simply a deficit of housing that's being built. And the only kind that we seem capable of building uh, is either more out at the exterior after the state sells some land and funds some schools or, or uh, the, you know, four over one kind of style. And again, that leaves this deficit of that whatever two to 20 unit missing middle housing that we used to have so much of, uh, you know, nationally, Dan Parallax's book talks about nationally, we used to have uh, over 25% of housing was that was missing middle two to two to 19 units. And 
Now it's uh, under 10%. So just steadily over the decades, we've, we've stopped building it. Uh, and if I'm a city council person, I think it's, I think it's one answer to uh, uh, a complex set of problems, but it's definitely a great way to start chipping away at, at this housing affordability crisis that we have. Yeah, I, I think that this also talks a little bit about, uh, we talk a lot about the strong towns approach and Chuck Marone and the idea of uh, our neighborhoods are not cast in, in stone. They are not unchanging over time. And historically, our communities, our cities, our neighborhoods have changed over time. But we have taken zoning to such an extent that we want to cast in amber our single family zoning and not allow these small changes. And the idea of turning one third of an acre lot uh, into four homes instead of one is, is that idea of that gentle incremental development like you were saying, or or you could have bought two lots, had a had a couple acres, and then uh, just put eighty units, plop it on top, and you go almost to the max zoning from there, and you don't have that middle. Right, and I I just want to bring up the the whole systems thinking part of this because honestly, what you guys are doing is so much more cost effective and sustainable for the city than the type of development out on the fringe, the type of development that is trying, the state is is selling off land in order to produce more homes at the fringe and the highway demand that that creates and then the, the, the inaccessibility of jobs and the inaccessibility of culture and the all of that vehicle mile travel that's just then plopped and plowed and pushed on to uh, first time home buyers or any home buyer and the people that are moving up into it's a new housing product. Like what you guys are doing is you're tapping into all these underutilized assets. You are, you are propping up existing economic development, existing businesses. You're bringing discretionary income into these neighborhoods in a time where we're recovering from, we're, we're, we're hoping to be recovering from a pandemic and we're going to have all these small businesses that are going to be really looking forward to uh, all that new discretionary income that's going to come in and help uh, help out these businesses that are really going to need um, that, that injection of resilience into the neighborhood. So kudos. Um, to, and that's why we're, we're, we wanted to have you guys on the, on the podcast and, um, and, and to talk about these types of this, this level of effect and the, the, the difference really in everything that Phoenix and, and the region does currently to meet its housing demands and, and how you guys are flipping the script on that in a much more responsive way um, based on all these systemic barriers um, that are leading us to very troublesome outcomes. Yeah, we are, we couldn't be more excited to, to be participating in this. I mean, the, unfortunately, it's just four units. I wish we could build so many more all at once. Um, hopefully, we're going to do more in the future. But, uh, you know, I think that there's there's no simple solution to complex social problems, what I've always been told. But there, I do think there are solutions that exist at the intersection of different problems. Uh, and, again, they help you chip away at it. And this is, for me, is one of those, you know, the other thing that it really does is increase choice and different accessibility for different lifestyles. Uh, Roberto was touching on that earlier, but uh, you know th this type of unit, I could see this as some, somewhere where someone's aging in place or they downsize into to be closer to their family. Uh, you could see it with a family with uh, one child in the, in the second bedroom. Uh, and it's in a context 
Uh, like you said, it's not out on the fringe. Uh, it's in central Phoenix. And if you had a child in that second bedroom, the neighborhood elementary school is a couple blocks south. You could legitimately walk to school, which is a rare condition these days, on a quiet neighborhood street. I mean, that's not something you can get every day. And that brings value to a project and location. But um, if it's limited to one lot, one family at a time, then it limits the number of people who have access to that. So, uh, you know, if I'm a city council person, that's another reason why I want it. It's good for my constituents, good for the tax base, more efficient use of streets and infrastructure. I save some trees. That's a good day for me. So taking a look at what, what we're thinking and how efficient this is for the greater community, the flip side of that is that this is very inefficient for a developer. Um, I often think that doing one or four or 10, 10 homes is the same amount of brain damage as it is to do 100. It sure is, David. <laughs> I think you're na- hitting the nail on the head. And, and that is the, the big incentive is why we see so many two, three, 400 unit apartment complexes go up because that's the same amount of effort as it would be to build four or 10 homes. And so from your point of view, at, from the, the neighborhood level, what, what can we be doing to incentivizing these sort of gentle neighborhood level approaches to development um, to make that easier for the next developer that wants to, the next neighbor that wants to develop in their neighborhood? And before you answer that question, I just want to say that I love this question because I think that this is something that is can be amplified more than any one large company, right? If we if we disperse a hundred Lucases and, and Robertas out onto the world to to do this type of work, it it scales up better than 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 massive corporations. Yeah, that's again, that's that systems level thinking. How do we reduce barriers to entry so that uh, development kind of follows the path of least resistance, right? I mean, for me, I've, I've always viewed capital as sort of like water. It basically flows to the path of least resistance in order to find return. And, you know, as much as we all don't want to be called capitalists all the time, uh, you know, every one of these lots is a business and is every development is driven by uh, oh, return, unless someone has a personal reason why they're doing it or a nonprofit mission or something. So. Yeah, I mean, we do need to reduce barriers to entry. There's a number of things. I mean, Roberta, I got my list, but what comes to mind for you is the biggest things that are the barriers that stand in the way that we should be working on. Just the design process alone. I mean, you know, I often, you know, the first question I get is, well, how long will it take you to work that out? You know, I want four units on that lot. How long is that going to take you to do? And it's like, you know, I look at how long we've spent on this project and all the things that we've encountered, you know, it's, it, you just can't even, you can't even say that up front right now. I mean, I think as this becomes more commonplace and, you know, you, one thing you really have to understand is the zoning ordinance that you're working in, in the city that you're working in, because that just, the requirements just within that zoning ordinance, you have to fully understand everything 
while you're laying things out. And I think for us, this has been somewhat of a learning process. Um, but I also think there were just things that we could have never even imagined that we were going to have to deal with. Um, you know, one um, being grading and drainage. And that's something, you know, until you have everything designed, you know where the units are going to go. You can't even get that into place. And then when you call that into place, the other expense involved with all the um, grading and drainage issues that we've dealt with, which I think, Lucas, you know, you probably know that more from a price point, but I can't quantify how much this is going to cost you. Um, from day one, it, it, I think it's just too difficult right now with, with such a new process and it's a new process for me. I, and I think a new process for venue projects, maybe other people have done more work in this area and, you know, they can say, oh, you know, it's going to be X amount, you know, because that's typically what people want to know, you know, overall, how much is it going to be cost per square foot? And that's a really difficult thing to say right now. Yeah, there's a lot of things that drive costs. I mean, I think Roberta touched on one of the biggest, which is grading and drainage is always a thing. But once you get to the four units, you trigger a lot of multifamily style site development standards. So, you know, you can you can live under that. With If you do a duplex, for example, uh, there's a lot less intensive, more residential style uh, site development standards. But once you once you get to uh, just a couple units more, uh, the switch flips and you're a multifamily complex and you've got standards that are applicable uh, to uh, the same as if you were doing 50, 80, 200 units uh, when it comes to open space standards and um, grading drainage standards and a lot of right of way improvements. Uh, so, you know, the at that small scale, um, all those added layers of cost don't really scale very well. For example, if you have to do your underground storage tank, water retention tanks, like we're going to have to do on this site, I mean, you're going to you're talking about a forty, fifty thousand dollar minimum ticket item once it's marked up through subs and GCs and things, and uh, that might be even on the low end, depending. So, if you're a developer and you have to make that back, let's say you have to make back one percent, you know, there's a standard napkin rule of one percent of your costs per month in rent uh, in order to be sustainable. Uh, a lot of people like to get more than that. They might need one and a half or two percent or more. Anyway, uh, you know that's what's that's five hundred a month. If that fifty thousand dollar ticket put on you, that's five hundred a month in rent. You're going to have to make up. We have four units. That's one hundred twenty five dollars a month in rent right there. So if you're renting that unit, one hundred twenty five dollars your rent is go towards paying back underground grading and drainage, which sounds fine. Uh, when you talk about it just like that, but there's a lot of rows in a spreadsheet. You got grading and drainage, you got parking, you got your site landscape standards, you got your curb and gutter, you got your pavement restoration policy. You've, you've got you've got your site ramps that we we had to deal with. <laughs> it's a long list. And we haven't even designed the building yet. Yeah. <laughs> no, we haven't even designed the building yet. And and it sounds like a lot of complaining. I get that. I mean. If I'm a planner sitting there, I'm thinking, well, I mean, that's the cost of development. You have to contribute to the public realm. Uh, you're taking advantage of public infrastructure. There has to be some sort of give back for that. Uh, and there is a give and take. There really should be a give and take. But uh, I'm not here advocating the developer should 
should give nothing back to the public realm because they gain so much value from the civic and public realm. Again, that neighborhood school is right down the street. That's value you're getting to some extent. Uh, so the thing that, uh, that just needs to happen is it needs to be scalable in a way. Uh, it needs to be, instead of a switch being flipped, it should be a spectrum, in my opinion. There should be some kind of sliding scale of, of, of regulation, of regulation imposed costs, et cetera, uh, that, uh, you know, if you're four units, you might have to do a quarter of what a, a 20 or 50 unit has to do. Uh, relative to your size of project, you should have relative give back to uh, the public. Uh, and so that, to me, there's there's got to be a formula in there for, for a sliding scale that makes sense. And interestingly enough, I mean, there's been communities that have, have done this recently. You know, the state of Oregon just implemented sweeping statewide parking reform that applies to small lots is basically expressly uh, the goal is expressly to facilitate missing middle style development uh, and if you have you know a small lot uh, you're they pass parking reform that I mean it says that uh, if you have a residential lot of 3,000 square feet or less you can't be required to have more than one off-street parking space. And that's for uh, up to four, the first four attached homes. Yeah, in LA County as well, they uh, added that for their accessory dwelling units. If you add a home in your backyard for another person, you don't have to add any extra parking. And that goes hand in hand with the reforms that we're seeing with uh, doing away with single family residential zoning as a restrictive zoning uh, type. So um, kudos to, uh, for those, those types of policies coming together. Yeah. I mean, Oregon is a great case study because they've done both. They, the first step was statewide up zoning of single family, mm -hmm. which if you love single family and you build single family and you only want to buy single family, you could still do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could still develop single-family house in a lot. It's just that, you know, by right, you could do up to four units. Or I believe in the city of Portland, uh, they even added on to that where you could get up to six if two of them uh, qualify as affordable using whatever um, area median income calculation they do. So they even have a density bonus on top of that if they're afford expressly affordable units. So, I mean, you're seeing cities and states – uh, get really creative. And I would love to see, uh, and I think there's a lot of people in the city of Phoenix, a lot of planners, a lot of leadership that would love to see that too. Uh, when you talk to them, uh, they do, they, they like this style of stuff. Uh, they would love to see more of that. It's just this, you know, Frankenstein zoning code over decades and decades and decades is uh, they don't always get the chance to do that kind of sweeping reform. So quick question. Yes or no. Does buy right zoning exist in the Valley of the Sun. <laughs> just, I guess <laughs> I'll tell you that I don't, I don't know that we've done a project that didn't have a variance. However, we kind of like to do wild and wacky projects. So we're probably not the best example. Roberta, what do you, how, how has that been for you and your experience? I mean, Roberta's done a, a she works with us, but uh, you know, she's a heck of an architect and has done some really complicated adaptive reuse projects uh, in the warehouse district of Phoenix uh, and, and all across the city. So I don't know. What's your experience been? Well, I mean, I think as soon as you try to do something that's out of the norm, um, for instance, um, 
this was many years ago, but um, along 32nd Street, uh, just south of Camelback, we rezoned uh, four houses that were on 32nd Street into residential office. And it was a process that, you know, of course, variances, um, no doubt. Um, but just the rezoning process was absolutely ridiculous. I mean, I think, it, I think it probably took us two years to get through that rezoning process. And the houses were not, they weren't really being utilized as great houses anyway. They were rentals. Um, they had a huge amount of, you know, people would live in them for three months and then move out. And so there was just this constant influx. And what was interesting was we had a lot of opposition to that project, but the opposition was coming from outside neighborhoods, more from Arcadia area, things like that. But the actual neighborhood that we were attached to, they were so happy to see those go residential office, even though we ended up having to put, you know, we, we had to add a parking lot we added a consecutive parking lot for all four of the residential houses, um, one in, one out parking lot. It really, I mean, it's, it's a very um, great example of residential office, but the neighbors were the ones that were like, yes, we want this because we don't want to have such uh, transitory neighbors, which was what the only thing that that appealed to those houses along 32nd street, because you couldn't even pull out of, you know, it was, you were taking your life in your hands, pulling out onto 32nd street. So it, it, it was really interesting to see a neighborhood support it, but people outside the neighborhood, not supporting it. You know, that that's another one of those projects where we were lucky. Um, me and my past business partner, obviously we were architects and we were able to invest that money basically doing it for free <laughs> because it was our project, but you can't, it's, it's hard to find people that are willing to invest that type of money into that type of project and get that kind of outcome when you don't, when you don't, when you don't have that like tie in and you don't, you don't have, you know, you, you want that for yourself or for your company, which was what we were, you know, why we did it. Well, it's it's difficult to underwrite the risk of, of zoning processes. You know, it truly is. It's uh, because zoning is so use based here and not form based. I don't know, David, that it that buy right does exist for a redevelopment project. I'll tell you that. Yeah. In that context, it's so much based on the use that came before. That's um, so difficult to find. Uh, by right redevelopment. You guys are making great cases, I think, uh, as to why the the regulatory model is is leading us astray from what we really really deserve, what we need to to rethink and think about the benefits of the infill, the redevelopment, and everything. So, you guys, um, kudos to all the work that you've done. Uh, you know, this there's obviously a lot of lessons learned that you guys offer up and I can tell from the conversation that there is no one size fits all type of solutions that come out of this work uh, that you can pass on. 
Uh, I think maybe uh, I touched on one uh, that is, is sort of something that I think is low hanging fruit, which is just to give credit to uh, those parking spaces that you can preserve and reduce the amount of, of curb cuts uh, that, that end up leading to driveways that cross sidewalks that end up leading to more potential places where people can people and cars meet in a, in a bad way. So, yeah, giving credit to parking spaces uh, that you can preserve in the street should just be a kind of a slam dunk. But outside of, of that, is there any other sort of code hacks um, that that you think that uh, you offer that's been inspired by your work? Uh, well, you know, one thing that, that we've looked a lot at is, uh, again, kind of that threshold of 2, 3, universe 4 and, um, you know, the difference when you have the same, the building that is designed, same footprint, same exterior dimensions for two units versus maybe a four unit, for example, uh, you have triggered totally different standards. So uh, one thing we've looked at a lot is uh, doing duplexes on lots um, because some of the requirements are less intensive. Uh, but I would say the biggest hack uh, of all there is that having uh, alley access uh, which we actually have a lot of in central Phoenix opens up a lot of site plan possibilities. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, if you were doing site selection, I'm not sure to what extent the alleys exist in other cities. I haven't worked in them, but in central Phoenix, historically, we have a lot of usable alleys uh, and, and that can cre create some really great conditions where you can address the street uh, without having the curb cut and uh, parking lot out front. Uh, and you have more of a new urbanist style, actually, where you know you're, you have your rear-loaded uh, properties. Mm -hmm. That's something that Roberta has opened my eyes to with uh, some of the duplexes she's started to design. Yeah, and that I mean, but that does strictly um, that's strictly if it's a duplex triplex. Um, once you get into the fourplex, you're into the multifamily standards, which you can no longer um, utilize that alley. So it's sort of an interesting little hack that if you can utilize the alley and you want to, you know, do a smaller, you know, duplex triplex scenario that it, it seems to be a really helpful, helpful hack to have that alley, have your parking directly off the alley. So that's a Phoenix Stony Code uh, issue that they restrict alley access for multi-housing four units or more? Um, you can't, uh, in multifamily, you can't utilize the rear setback for parking. But in, um, in, if you're doing a duplex or triplex, they allow you to utilize the, uh, utilize the alley and the rear setback. Because they want the cars to be front and center. Well, which is interesting because that in a, in a duplex, it sort of allows you that what you see in bigger cities where people are parked along the street and that, you know, the house directly addresses the street and it's not, you know, cluttered by parking in the, you know, in the front setback or in the front of the house. So you kind of get into that old style neighborhood where it's really just people parking along the street and then the house directly addresses the street. So yeah, it is a very interesting um, it's, it's a, it's interesting getting into the zoning ordinance to that level and starting to see, um, what you can do to, um, utilize these duplex and triplexes versus getting into multifamily. 
Yeah, a lot. There's a lot of opportunity in West Mesa, uh, where I live, because we in our subdivision homes of the late '40s, '50s, and maybe early '60s, we had a lot of alleys that we've pretty much abandoned. And uh, there's some great opportunity as we look at how our communities shift, whether we can bring those alleys back. Yeah, and I, I realize that there's a lot of single-family residential neighborhoods that bemoan the the burdens of cleaning up the alley or keeping them from being places where nefarious activities are, are occurring. But even if they're not developed, uh, like I think that there's this opportunity to like preserve an easement uh, long term, so that as as neighborhoods thicken up over time, that you can by right like move your neighbor's rear wall and be like, look if. if you put a shed up in the alley easement um, that's that's on you to, to relocate. And so we're just going to uh, make sure that we like preserve this alley easement uh, long-term then it, move those walls, uh, those site walls when, when necessary um, because otherwise, yeah, the, the, the costs and the barriers to thickening up neighborhoods and, and having them preserved in the long-term and, and inviting this type of uh, redevelopment and, and investment is, uh, is too heavy of a lift. And we keep on pushing the development, uh, the, that capital into those easier, those easier quadrants like uh, Lucas mentioned earlier. And, and uh, I definitely appreciate the sliding scale argument that you bring up, Lucas. I've seen that even in suburbia where new development is occurring and you have the subdivision ordinance that's saying, well, from one house to 99 homes, you have these many standards. And then all of a sudden that hundredth home, all of a sudden the the standard goes way up. And so what is the, the benefit to like arbitrarily defining these hard numbers and in ways that um, miss the intent really of what you're trying to do. And that sliding scale is, is a place where we can, we should be open to finding more compromise um, so that we're not arbitrarily leaving out a missing segment uh, in the range, like missing middle. Yeah. There should be some sort of logical, rational nexus between the number uh, and the what's required of that number. Like you said, you flip a switch. What's the logical rationale for the, the two X difference in 99 and a hundred, you know, that mm-hmm. that's a tough one for me to work out. Uh, and I think a lot of the planners and, and city officials would agree uh, if they were aware of it or made aware of it. All right. Well, I, I do uh, hope that, you know, the, the regulatory frameworks and the, the advocacy comes about and we make more room for missing middle. And, and if, and if all that came about, uh, what what would be the difference? What would be the difference to your your work and your passions and the ability to to do what you do? Like, can you can you quantify it? Can you qualify it? Is there a way that you can describe the different the the difference maker it would be to you and folks like yourselves? Well, I mean, to quantify, I mean, just total lag. But you you there's enough of uh, requirements and cost driving requirements. You probably could save uh, or forestall kind of a couple hundred dollars of rent per month, then that's something that could get passed along. Uh, and I think that's meaningful to a, to a large number of people. Uh, and to qualify, I mean, I if this was easier to do, I mean, I could be do, doing more of it. I'd be having even more fun. So I'd love to, <laughs> I'd love to, you know, it's certainly our mission to do more, like I said, either way. Uh, we're going to push through. We're going to do more. 
Uh, we're going to learn from this and find sites maybe that are a little easier next time. That's that's a good thing to take away. But, uh, you know, we've also – now we have units and plans and, and things that are more replicable. Uh, we'll have our subcontractors and everybody trained and interested in the type of work. We can reuse some details here and there. So it gets more efficient along the way for us. Uh, I'm excited to to do more of it and – and help uh, Phoenix change, grow, and uh, you know turn into a, a new, more dense um, urban city. That's the kind of city I want to live in. So I just have great neighborhoods with options for all lifestyles and affordable to a range of people. That would be the ideal. What would be the difference to you, Roberta? Well, I mean, I, I'm with Lucas. I, I mean, obviously, I, I love what I do. Um, it, it would be great to just be doing more of it and, and it'd be something that is more readily accessible to do. Um, there would be more of it out there. I, I mean, I enjoy doing it. It's really been a learning process for me. And I, I would just really appreciate anyone that would be willing to do more of this type of work and be interested in doing something that isn't small scale and isn't large scale, but keeps us right in the middle and helps to develop the city. And there's, man, it's, it really just makes me think too. I'd be remiss if I didn't add. It's not just having more of the product, but that more people could do it and more small to mid-sized builders, developers uh, would have those pathways to, to wealth creation uh, and to building in their own backyard. Uh, you know, when we exclude people from doing that, from being able to develop their own small investment property, you know, we're excluding people from pathways to generational wealth and things that are life-changing. So if you look at like the FHA mortgage hack with a four unit, uh, you know, some of the people I know on real estate, Twitter were saying the other day, there is that is the single most assured pathway to wealth creation in America. And if there's no four units around for people to buy and they're so scarce and rare that they're they're all over 250 a door and all over a million dollars each and it's not accessible to anyone um, who's going to be able to participate in that except high net worth investors well and also i think you it's important to have that small scale developer interested in these types of projects because the really large scale developers are only going to be interested in doing large multifamily you know, that, that's where the money is. So if we don't make it easier at, for the small scale developer, then how do we keep this intact and keep this within the city if we don't make it an easier process for the small scale developer that has the interest in the city itself? You know, like I think we were talking earlier, I've, I've had people come to me that are interested, but once you look at the lot, and you see that it can't be done or that it would just be so difficult, that person, that developer gets turned off right away. They're like, well, I don't have that type of money to invest into that research that that's going to take to move it to the next level. You know, what happens to that lot? Um, do they just wait till they can accumulate multiple lots and then build a hundred units or something right. like that? Right. If we don't, if we don't let our neighborhoods get built, by our neighbors, then we're just ceding it to Wall Street. <laughs> if that's what we want to do, is cede our cities to Wall Street, so be it. But that's not what that's not what we want to do. 
Yeah. Well, I hear your guys' heart in this project, and I think that's a great note to to leave off on. That you guys uh, are taking ownership, putting in your passion, putting in your talents, and, and uh, taking chances out there uh, where it takes really somebody not to, so faint of heart. So kudos for all of the the passion and effort that you guys put into this. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity to come and rant about zoning and site development standards. <laughs> I love it. Um, thanks for the platform to, to speak out. And have a great conversation. So Lucas, if anyone wants to find you or your work online, where can they find you? Yeah, thanks, uh, David. It's uh, venueprojects.com. V as in Victor, venueprojects.com. Uh, show some of the work we've done over the years. I would be Making a big mistake if I didn't give a shout out to to the team. Uh, only this is only happening because there's a great group of people around Roberta. We work with a lot, but uh, our principals, John Kitchell, Leatrice Kitchell, Lorenzo Perez, uh, who lead the team, and then uh, we got a great guy in the field, Mike Toll, and then my contemporary Christian Hume, who's a development manager alongside me. That's the Venue Projects crew, and uh, all Phoenix based. A lot of them Phoenix born and bred. Here for the long haul. Look us up online. <laughs> and Roberta, where can people find out about you and your your uh, work online? Well, I don't I don't actually have an online presence, but um, you can contact me at Roberta at rclayarchitect.com if you have any questions or are interested in um, discussing anything with uh, missing middle housing. Roberta's so good, she just gets word of mouth. She doesn't even need <laughs> Yeah, I'm an individual architect, so it's, you know, can only do so many projects a year. 